0: last week as we finished up Deuteronomy chapter 13 if you're visiting with us we were in we're going to be in Deuteronomy 14 15 and 16 but uh, as we left off chapter 13 I wanted to touch on one thing in verse 8 that I, we didn't have time to discuss as we were talking about the idea of the, the idolaters that might be found in the nation as in the land as they settled in the land Deuteronomy 13 verse 8 says if you find someone like this that is given to idolatry and is trying to seduce you to idolatry verse eight says neither shall your eye pity him neither shalt thou spare neither shalt thou conceal him and i just want to make the point before we leave that chapter too much that all too often that is human nature as we try to if we know of sin in someone's life we sometimes fall back and we try to conceal it or hide it rather than exposing it here as is discussed in this chapter and we can certainly learn the lessons that are needed to from that uh, going forward into the new covenant as well. All right, that's chapter 13 and one other thing I want to look at before we go into chapter 14 and I want to look at this before we get too far away from chapters 1 through 11 that we discussed. And that is the idea that we touched on briefly in Deuteronomy 1, verse 8, where God says, go in and possess the land. Deuteronomy 1, 8, He says, I have set the land before you. Go in and possess it. And in chapter 3, verse 18, we read, He uses the phrase, at least my version says, I have given you the land. Go in and possess it. And I think about, as we go forward into the New Covenant passages such as Romans 6, verse 23. The wages of sin is death, but the what is eternal life? The the gift of God is eternal life. The American Standard inserts the word free gift, which is kind of, uh, of superfluous, I guess, to say free gift. But it is a gift nonetheless, and you compare that to philippians 2 verse 12 where we're told to work out our own salvation so let's tie this all together god gave the israelites the land but they had to take it god gives us salvation but we have to philippians 2 verse 12 we have to work it out don't we we have to work out our own salvation We have to take it. God gives it to us, but yet we have to take it. There's so many lessons we could uh, draw off of that, but we don't have time to to go into all those. I just wanted to to see that lesson as we're in Deuteronomy. And these are lessons that how God works with us, how God works with his people. And we can take lessons from that as well today. All right, Deuteronomy chapter 14. Let's go to the questions. I'll direct your mind first to the questions here on chapter 14. What were they forbidden to do for the dead? Cut
1: themselves or shave the
0: bald spot on Okay. Don't cut yourselves or make baldness between the eyes. And how did they determine what animals were clean and unclean? It was revealed to them. God directed them, didn't he? laid it out pretty well pretty simple and easy to understand they're not left to themselves in other words what how to determine what is clean and what is not clean the same way uh, with the fishes and birds Uh, we'll get into that more detail how they were to, to determine that as we read the text to what things did the tithe apply
1: From the land in the first
0: part of okay, all the increase, the produce from your land and your seed, the seed and the field, and the flocks, and how were they to provide for the Levites? The Levites got a portion when they brought sacrifices. Okay, they would be given a portion of the increase, a tithe. Now, as we get into Deuteronomy chapter 14, we're in this section here. In restating covenant laws with much added uh, commentary, admonition, and warnings. Verse 1 and 2, he covers the idea of cuttings and the baldness between the eyes. Deuteronomy 14, you are the children of God, of Jehovah your God. You shall not cut yourselves nor make any baldness between your eyes for the dead. Thou art a holy people unto the Lord thy God, and the Lord hath chosen thee to be a people for his own possession above all peoples that are upon the face of the earth. Now notice there the last part of verse 1, he says this is for the dead. This is something that was typical of the Canaanite people to do as they mourned those that are dead. They would disfigure themselves in such a way to show that they're mourning. And God says, I don't want you to be part of that. I don't want you to be like that. I don't want you to be associated with those people in any way, even in the way that you look. Uh, He doesn't say that, uh, you know, it has to be an occasion for the dead. He says, just don't do that. It appears to me to be the wording here. Just don't make that uh, disfigurement or baldness between your eyes. Now verse three, he gets into the the idea that we've talked about about uh, the clean animals and the clean creatures and how to distinguish what is clean and what is not god lays out a very plain very simple way for the, them to determine that in verse three thou shalt not eat any abominable thing these are the beasts which you may eat the ox the sheep the goat the heart the gazelle the roebuck and so forth and as if we we don't have to list every single one, do we? Because we come to verse six, and what two criteria are given to them to determine that? Part the hoof and chew the cud, right? Verse six: every beast that parteth the hoof and cheweth the cud cud among the beasts that ye may eat. And what if it what if you find a beast that only does one what if he has a parted hoof and doesn't chew the cud is that okay what if he chews the cud and has not the parted hoof is that okay no he's saying both are included in the clean animals the swine verse 8 because he parteth the hoof and cheweth not the cud he is unclean unto you, of their flesh you shall not eat, and their carcasses you shall not touch. Now we have to put this in the context of the Israelites are coming out of the wilderness, and they haven't had what we might call a traditional diet. So with that backdrop, and certainly with a lot of new, the new generation, the younger people that have come along in those 38 plus years, God needs to set the standard and reiterate what's been determined that are clean and unclean animals as they go into the land. And actually, they're going to see not only in chapter 13, we saw they're going to face people that are idolaters. They're going to influence you for that. Perhaps it is that they would go in and they would see people eating anything they wanted to eat. And God says, you are not to eat these things. He lays out an outline, very strict and explicit, what they should eat. So we have to understand what they're coming from and what they're going to. This land could, they need to know, they need to be aware of what would be unclean. Now verse 9, the fish, what two criteria does he lay out for the fish? has to have the, the fins and the scales that you may eat verse 9 if it doesn't then you cannot eat what about the birds what category of birds would you say uh, let's look at verse 12 the eagle the gear eagle the osprey the glee the falcon the kite after its kind the raven after its kind all of these are what we would call what class of birds they're predatory type birds, aren't they? They're, they feed after other animals and creatures. So they're what we would call a predatory type bird. Verse 19, all winged creeping things are unclean to you and shall not be eaten of all clean birds, though you may eat. Now, uh, verse 21, whatever dies of itself is considered unclean as well and another category that is perhaps in the category of those that were canaanites verse 21 the last part says thou shalt not boil a kid in its mother's milk and it uh, is known to be that they would uh, do that type of thing the canaanites would do that kind of thing and he says don't take up their Example, and do anything like this, you shall not boil a kid in its mother's milk. Verse 22, we get into the tithe here, but before we do, let's uh, want to make a few points here. So as we look at the outline, the animals would part the hoof and chew the cud. Uh, this this is a uh, the, the clean animals. The fishes would have fins and scales. The birds are those that would be considered not predatory type birds now I want you to think about the the, uh, category let's go back to the verse 8 the swine you don't know if you're like me you eat a lot of pork I eat a lot of pork I love bacon and those type things but I wouldn't have fit very well and, and it would have taken me a long time to get used to this and sometimes we hear uh, dietary restrictions that don't eat red meat, don't eat this kind of meat, don't eat that kind of meat. And, and we sometimes I think we read a passage like this and we justify it in the sense that, oh, that makes sense to me. that That's a dietary restriction that God is giving that, that really makes a lot of sense. Maybe we can do that with the, the birds as well and the fish. And we read it and it says, well, That makes a lot of sense to me. That sounds logical. But I think we have missed the point when we try to justify it in that way. When God says, I don't want you eating this meat or that meat or that meat, we take it simply on face value. We listen to what he says. It's the same type of thing in... Uh, as we look in the New Testament at passages like 1 Corinthians chapter 1, we don't, we don't try to justify the preaching of the cross, do we? We don't try to justify baptism and say, well, that makes sense to me. That's logical to me. So therefore, I will obey that command. I think all too often we look at passages like these unclean animals and they think, well, that makes sense that we wouldn't eat that because it's not good for you. But that's not the point. God said don't eat it. We are to be obedient to what even the world might consider foolish things. 1 Corinthians 1 verse 18 talks about the preaching of the cross is to some that perish, it is what? It is foolishness. It doesn't make sense to them. So the problem is we, we cannot try to make sense of every command. If we do, we're going to get back into a corner and there are going to be some things that we disobey just because it doesn't make sense to me. We can look at baptism. We can say, well, that kind of makes sense to me. It's a man that's washing the sins away. And if we get into the trap of trying to justify that so much that it becomes logical to us, we have lost the idea of what obedience is. Obedience is simply obeying it because God said so. It doesn't have to make sense to me in any way. God doesn't require me to put it through my mind and make sense out of it and make it logical. God just wants simple obedience, doesn't he? So let's understand and think about that when we read a passage like this and try not to justify it in our own minds and make sense out of it and to rationalize the commandments of God. Yes? Can I just make a comment on that point? And I'm going to equate it to the parent-child relationship. A parent tells a child to do something. It may not make any sense to the child, why the parent wants it done, the parent has no responsibility to justify or explain why he or she has told the child to do it. And so parents don't need to justify that. So if, if, the, if and I'm making that point, because if as parents, we feel like we have to justify our actions to the child, how can, they, how can the child ever understand God's authority if they cannot understand the parent authority. Mm -hmm. Very good. Yes. Got one more. Let me think of uh, Deuteronomy 6, verse 24. It talks about God's commandments are for your good always. And that's all we need to know about it. When God gives us a command, it's for our good. So we just do it. It's for our good. And we don't have to justify Say, Well, that's good for my body that's good for my family or whatever, or that's good for the, the, uh, my neighbors. It's just good because God said it was good, yes.
1: By the same token, what you were pointing out, um, just briefly from verse 21, you see something where he's they're told not to boil a kid in its mother's milk. I don't think you'll find anything um, necessarily immoral, about that, nothing necessarily, for sure, nothing related to nutrition and dietary, um, you know, guidelines. It's it's simply a matter of God um, showing something another way that they would be different, something that they were to follow because they trusted in God and, and had a heart that wanted to follow God's word. And people mock this like they mock any of these other things. We well, look at these silly rules the Bible has; they don't understand. That this is teaching them that they were not to be anything like the other nations. And it becomes a lesson for us as we get to especially 2 Corinthians chapter 6. As one example of many where we're not to be like uh, the world.
0: Very good. In the last section of Deuteronomy 14, he begins talking about verse 22, the tithe. Thou shalt surely tithe all the increase of your seed, which cometh forth from the, year, uh, from the field year by year. Thou shalt eat before the Lord thy God. Notice this phrase, verse 23. We've highlighted it much in uh, chapter 12 last week. In the place which he shall choose. To cause his name to dwell there, the tithe of the grain, the new wine, the oil, the firstlings of thy herd, of the flock... Verse 24, if, I, if the way be too long for thee, you're not able to carry it. He, says, he goes on to explain that you can turn this into money. When you get to Shiloh or get to Jerusalem, you can turn it back into whatever. And verse 26, he says you can get there where the, where the tabernacle is, and you can turn it back into uh, whatever you desire, for oxen or sheep or wine or strong drink or for whatever your soul asketh thou shalt eat there before the Lord thy God thou shalt rejoice thou thy household there was uh, just a real quick reference here Matthew 21 where Jesus goes in and turns over the money changers in the temple that was an abuse of what we see here where they're changing money for uh, the animals in verse 26 Uh, not necessarily that it ties in specifically here but this is a uh, what started out as a good thing. God said to do this, but the people abused it in Matthew 21, and were basically turning it into a marketplace, making merchandise, and just making a living. Uh, Notice in the last part of verse 26 also thou shalt eat it there before the Lord thy God. Notice again that idea. You will eat it at a certain place that God desires and God chooses. Thou shalt eat it there before the Lord thy God. Thou shalt rejoice thou and thy household. But don't forsake the Levite. Verse 27. Now at the uh, end of every three years, verse 28, you will have a tithe and it will be given for the Levite, the sojourner, the fatherless, and the widow that are within thy gates. It appears to me that this is a, an, a, a uh, year set aside to make sure that you take care of these people that are within your territory, the Levite, the sojourner, fatherless, and the widow. So as we review that section there, the tithe in verse 22 through, through 29, of all your increase, it is a tithe of your fields and your flocks, whatever's increased for the year. Or you can take it; uh, you can convert that to money, take it to the place where God is in the tabernacle. You can convert that and take the money there with you if you be too far away. And also he includes the idea of the third year. Make sure you do not forget uh, to give this to this tithe to the Levite and to the sojourner, fatherless and the widows. Now, as we look at chapter 14, I wanted to look at, we see commandments here that are maybe what the world would consider peculiar, odd, and strict, but God, as we've talked about already, God requires His people to be holy, to be separate from the world, And when we look at that idea of being separate, I want to look at the idea of what some of the scholars call a theocracy. What is a theocracy? A theocracy is a a system of government, if you will, that is designed as God being the center and everything that is part of their lives is centered around God. Whether you're talking about the religious part of your life, that ceremonial commandments that we've seen or whether we're talking about the civil part of our lives, the social part of our lives, whether even work, or how we treat our neighbor, the moral part of our life, that's how personally I am remain pure before God and my I consider myself as doing things that are only holy and righteous and pure And then we look at the domestic part of the life, that which pertains to my family, my home life. All of these areas, God is giving them laws that pertain to each of those areas. God permeates every aspect of their lives. Their religious, ceremonial part of their lives, their civil, social part, the self, and He also tells us how to live amongst our family the domestic part of our lives and we talk about that and we talk about a theocracy and let's just think forget that word theocracy here let's look at these categories here and God's the center of their lives every single aspect of their lives is determined by God God gives them laws for that and I ask you to stop and pause and think just a minute Is it really any different for us today? Even if you want to go over and talk about the civil part, does God make laws regarding civil government and that type of thing? Not directly, but He ordains those who are in charge, doesn't He? So God even permeates that part of our lives. So really you talk about, the scholars talk about a theocracy, but really if we really boil it down and think about it god still permeates and should permeate our life every aspect of our lives shouldn't he i don't know of any aspect of our lives that god does not permeate and that we should allow him to be in and permeate and tell us how to live so i just think that's interesting sometimes you'll you may read and and uh study the old testament and this idea will come up but it's really not altogether different for the christian any thoughts on chapter 14 as we leave that chapter all right chapter 15 <clears throat> got three questions here on chapter 15 what first what would happen to debt every 7 years okay be forgiven be erased. The poor were to be treated in what manner?
1: Provided for their
0: needs. Provided for. Uh, for what their needs are. And what about the bond servant?
1: Free the seventh
0: year. Be, be look let, let go free the seventh year. The firstlings of the flock were for what purpose? Okay? Sanctified and uh, given to God. Chapter 15. At the end of every seven years thou shalt make a release. And this is the manner of the release. Every creditor shall release that which he hath lent to his neighbor. He shall not exact it of his neighbor and his brother, because the Lord's release hath been proclaimed. If a foreigner thou mayest exact it, but whatsoever is thine is with thy brother, thy hand shall release. Notice in verse uh, 4, he gives us one of those uh, commentaries or admonitions that go along with this. Howbeit there shall be no poor with thee, for the Lord will surely bless thee in the land which the Lord thy God giveth thee, for an inheritance to possess it. What we tend to think is I want to get what's mine and I want to build it up and I want to make it as prosperous as it can be. But the Lord with the seventh year of release says, no, we're going to take it back down like it was and we're going to forgive that person, let him go, and we're going to erase that and he's allowed to let go. God says by doing so in verse 4, I will bless you. And it really goes back to the idea of obedience. You just simply obey what God says, and it is for your good. It is what God requires, and it's simple, trusting obedience. You do this, and the Lord will bless you. Now, go down to verse 7. If there be with thee a poor man, one of thy brethren, within any of your gates in the land which the Lord thy God giveth thee, thou shalt not harden your heart, not shut your hand from your poor brother, but you shall open your hand, be be giving, be generous to this poor one that is in need. Let me catch up on my chart here. The poor of the brethren. <clears throat> so the poor of the brethren, we see, you are to give him what he needs. But are you to... Are you allowed to wait if it's like two months away from the seventh year of release? Can you wait and say, well, the seventh year of release is coming up. Why don't you wait till then? What does God say there? Verse 9 Beware that there be not a base thought in your heart saying, the seventh year, the year of release, is at hand. Your eye be evil against your poor neighbor or your poor brother and thou give him nothing and he cries to the Lord it will be what to you sin. sin to you God says if you have a poor one in need you give it to him when he needs it and to not do so would be sin to us God says thou shalt surely give him verse 10 thou shalt not be grieved when you give it to him so this is the idea we don't Give it to him grudgingly. I'll go ahead and give it to you, but I sure wish I didn't have to. That's not the idea either, is it? I'll give it to you, but I'll go home and I'll complain and gripe about it. Verse 11, the poor will never cease out of the land. Therefore, I command thee, saying, thou shalt surely open thy hand. Notice this phrase again. Let's emphasize that. Verse 11, open your hand to your brother, to the needy, to the poor in your land. Now, very quickly, verse 4 and verse 11 seem to contradict. He says, verse 4, there shall be no poor with thee. But verse 11 says, the poor will never cease out of your land. And perhaps it is uh, an allusion to, if you will follow the commandments in verse 4, God says, there should be no poor. But knowing their hearts, they would perhaps be unfaithful, which they were, to the commands there would be poor in the land. Verse 11. There would indeed be poor. There would be poor in the land because the commandments were not followed. That's the only way I can make sense of those two verses. Now verse 12. Verse 12 through 18. If your brother, a Hebrew man or Hebrew woman, be sold unto thee, serve thee six years in the seventh year, thou shalt let him go free. When you let him go free, You will not let him go in what way? Do not let him go empty. Here again, that would be a difficult command to do, wouldn't it? To to follow. Okay, I'm already going to have to let this person go. I've been benefiting from this person being with me. And now I've got to let them go. And on top of that, I have to do what? On top of that, I have to let them go with just a little bit? No. Let's read on here, verse 14. You shall furnish him liberally out of your flock, out of the threshing floor, out of thy winepress, as the Lord thy God hath blessed thee, thou shalt give it unto him. So the Lord requires us in the seventh year, He says, to to give, let them go, erase that, and let them go and furnish them generously as they go. How often do you think that was followed? This is quite a difficult command as I look at it. Look at it. Just imagine you were an Israelite and all these years you've benefited from these people being servants with you. And now you've got to let them go. That would be difficult, wouldn't it? And that's why I think as we fast forward in Israel's history, we see a lot of uh, abuses of these type things. Now, if he decides to stay, if it be, verse 16, if he says unto thee, I will not go out, I would like to stay with you, you've been a very kind and generous master, what do you do in that case? Let them stay. You do something that sounds kind of harsh in a way. You take their ear and you put it on awl. You drive it into the door. We can't relate to anything like that, but it doesn't sound very pleasant, does it? But what that is is it expressing commitment. They're expressing their commitment to stay with their master because they've been kind and generous and they want to stay and commit to that, he says, you let them do so. In verse 18, it shall not seem hard unto thee when thou lettest one go, though, from thee, for thou, for to double of the hire of a hireling hath he served thee six years. And this is looking, verse 18 is looking back on this principle. Let him go. You've benefited. Now let them go. Now I want to maybe make a comment here, lest I forget it later, that... As we talked about the theocracy, God's per- permeating every part of their lives. God wants the entire Israelite nation to benefit, to prosper, to become great. And God has designed a way to take care of the poor, to take care of those that might be, uh, tend to be taken advantage of, And he says here, I want you to, when you become servants, you let those be released from their service. And I think a lot of this would cause uh, the poor of the land to be taken care of. When you have an extreme uh, higher class and you have a lower class, they begin to be oppressed. Those poor, those needy begin to be oppressed by those that have more. God is trying to equate that and to offset that type of problem. Do we have a comment here?
1: Yes, just, just to what you were saying about the uh, verse 4 and then verse 11. So first of all, the, uh, you're right to point out, he says, At first, there shall be no poor among you, and then later, the poor will never cease from the land. But as you pointed out, it's because they're taking action um, on that. I find it very interesting that in you come to the New Testament in the first century church, Precisely the same thing happened again, and with a very similar um, account um, in chapter 4 of Acts. Um, it said that there was no needy person among them. Well, it came down to just a couple verses later. It like, well, it's because they're taking action and supplying, and the statement is, they're distributing to each as any had need. <laughs> so, again, no contradiction. There was need, but... In fact, the need was taken care of, so it's as if there were none. So I just thought it would be um, helpful to point out the uh, comparison between what happened in the Old Testament and in the first century.
0: If we just follow the commands and the ideals that God has set forth. Now, verse 19, and this is the last paragraph on this chapter. The firstborn of the flock are addressed. Verse 19: The first males, firstborn males, are firstling males that are born of the herd of thy flock you'll sanctify to the Lord thy God thou shalt do no work with the first thing of thy herd all this is dedicated to God dedicated to his service but what happens if you uh, the firstborn is uh, maimed or blind or has a defect in some way do you still give it to God is that not okay it is the firstborn after all what's wrong with that God wants the best, doesn't he? God wants our best that we have to offer. In Malachi chapter 1, there's, we see an abuse of that thing. The idea that he's presenting there, the idea that why don't you take this and give it to your governors, give it to your officers and your land, those that are over you in the civil government, give it to them and see what they say to you. You bring in something that's defect, has a defect or maimed or blind and give it to them and see what they say. God says, I'm no different. I want the best you have to offer. So that's the principle he gives us here on the first of, first of the flock, firstborn of the flock. Notice as he says there, thou shalt not, verse 22, thou shalt eat it within thy gates, the unclean and the clean shall eat it alike and the, as you would eat the gazelle and the heart, as you would eat the, 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 the deer. you do eat it the same way. And only thou shalt not eat the blood thereof, you'll pour it out upon the ground as water. But only take the best to God. Now as we catch up on our outline here, firstborn of the flock is sanctified, it is eaten before the Lord, and the Lord says there are to be no blemishes in this. He will not accept anything less. As we look at the chapter as a whole, we look at the year of release, as we talked about, as providing for the poor, and I think it's to ensure that there's no oppression of the poor, that they're take, they're not taken advantage of, and this. Uh, will mirror the release from bondage in past and the future. You think about it, it's a release. God says it's a release, and you think about what they were released from. As they look back to Egypt, they were released from bondage. And it, there's some parallels I think we can draw from that. They're released from bondage in the past, and they're to look forward to the future, the time that they can be. Look at that bondage in the past and be relieved of that duty also in the year of release i think is a lesson that we would draw off of that from galatians chapter 6 verse 10 do good to those that are of the household of faith or rather do good to all men especially those that are of the household of faith we treat our brethren as they treated them here better than we would even those of the world so god provides for the poor god expects us to have a generous heart and uh, god wants to take care of the poor and wants us to take care of our brothers all right let's go on to chapter 16 with a few minutes we have left here chapter 16 is a review of the feast days chapter 16 verse 1 observe the month of Abib keep the Passover unto the Lord thy God for in the month of Abib the Lord brought thee out of Egypt by night and thou shalt sacrifice the Passover unto the Lord thy God of the flock and the herd in the place which God shall choose notice again there's that phrase and we're actually going to see this about six times in this chapter in the place that God shall choose verse 2 you eat the Passover. You do it before the Lord in the place that God shall choose. Notice verse seven: Thou shalt roast it and eat it in the place which the Lord thy God shall choose. And thou shalt turn in the morning and go unto the to thy tents. And notice again: We think about the idea that you, they go into the land. God doesn't want them being affected by all this idolatrous. All the idolatrous people in the land, he wants them to be in the place that God shall choose and not be affected by the worship of idolatry. That's one of the things I think he wants What he says do it in the place that I shall choose so that they would not be affected and tempted to worship idolatry. Now we go on to verse 9 through 12. We see the idea of the day of Pentecost. Verse 9, thou shalt count seven weeks, number unto thee from the time of the beginning to put the sickle to the standing grain shalt thou begin to number seven weeks. Thou shalt keep the feast of weeks unto the Lord thy God with a tribute of free will offering of thy hand which thou shalt give. And notice as we go down to the last part of verse 11, where are they to do this? What place? In the place that God shall choose. Six times again he mentions that in this chapter. And I think he's reviewing these feast days once again to make sure they understand that what God wants, what type of animals he wants, he doesn't really spend a lot of time on that, but he does spend a lot of time saying, I want you to do this in the place that I shall choose. Verse 11. Now verse 13, Thou shalt keep the feast of tabernacles seven days. Rejoice in the feast, thy son and thy daughter. Verse 14, verse 15. Do it where? In the place that God shall choose. In the place which the Lord Jehovah shall choose. And then if we haven't heard it already, verse 16 says, three times in the year, I want you your males to gather for these feast days in the place where God shall choose. Do you think God cares if they worship on every green hill or a high mountain? Does God care? Yes, He does. He wants them there where the tabernacle is so they can be with God and be away from the contaminating influence of idolatry and so many other things that we could mention there. And I put this chart on the screen here so we could see the division. The Passover, is in the first month, the 14th day of the Passover, and then following that, directly following that, would be the Feast of Unleavened Bread for seven days, starting on the 15th day. Then the next one, we count 50 days, and we see the day of Pentecost, this is a one-day feast. Sometimes it's called the Feast of Weeks or the Feast first Fruits of Harvest when their first fruits would come in. And then the seventh month and the tenth day would be the Day of Atonement. Uh, he doesn't mention that here, but that's called here the Feast of Tabernacles, and part of that is the Day of Atonement we think of. The seventh month and the tenth day of the month is the Day of Atonement, the Day of Atonement for Sin, and following that directly, for the seven days will be the Feast of Tabernacles, which they would hearken back and think about the booths that they... uh, Sometimes we call it the Feast of the the Booths when they are to recall the days that they stayed in tents and dwelt in tents in the wilderness. Now, I want you to look at verse 16 and 17 as we try to wrap this up. I'm actually going to go back and think about chapters 12 through 16 you don't have to turn back there but I want you to think back in your mind what we studied last week what we studied this week and sometimes it's a little bit difficult to try to tie all these together here especially in chapters like this we can take one chapter or a portion of it and maybe make sense of it but I got to thinking about uh, this time studying through is is there something related here that I'm not seeing And I want you to go with me here as we think about this just a minute. Go back to chapter 12 in your mind. That was dictated to them to worship in the place that God shall choose. Verse 13, he says, avoid idolaters. Chapter 14, he says, eat only clean meats. Chapter 14, at the end, he says, tithe. Don't forget to tithe all your grain, all your increase, even your animals. Chapter 15, the poor is provided for the seventh year of the lease. Chapter 15, again, he talks about the firstborn of the flock. You will eat it before the Lord at the place He shall choose. And these feast days are done before the Lord as in the place that He shall choose. And I think all this ties together in the sense that, look at the last part of verse 16. He says, You will appear on these feast days and you will not appear before the Lord in what way? Empty. You think about all the poor that are provided for. God wants all the land to prosper, all the people to prosper. He doesn't want a high class and a low class and upper class and the poor to be pushed away. God wants all of them to be provided for to be able to pay the tithes, to be able to eat before the Lord, to be able to do what they need to do to worship their God. Verse 16, he says, all of this, I think, ties together to me in a way that he says, I want all people to appear before me in those feast days and be able to worship and not come empty. Every man, verse 17, will give as he is able or as he is prospered according to the blessing of the Lord thy God, which he hath given thee.
1: Okay, thanks for your kind attention. We better stop there.